Electro Library Podcast Studio at Stonehill College, I'm Jared Green, and this is Short Circuits, one author in the spotlight, generating electricity, shooting off sparks. On this Short Circuit, I sit down with Teju Cole, novelist, essayist, photographer, and photography critic at the New York Times, to discuss hunger, creativity, politics, race, and freedom. Hello, I'm Teju Cole, and I'm here at Stonehill College. Thank you so much for joining us, Teju. I want to start by thinking of something that comes from your 2016 collection of essays, Known and Strange Things, uh, where you reflect, quote, I used to wonder what creative freedom would look like. If I could write about anything I wanted, what would I write about? Now that this growing body of work is reaching an increasingly large audience, I wonder if this has provided you with a new degree of creative freedom. From this new vantage point, what do you now feel free to write about? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a great question, um, and it uh, deserves a, a thoughtful answer, so I'm going to think for a minute. Um, uh, sometime in the... Uh, in in the mid eighties, my my parents sent me to boarding school in Nigeria. I was only there for a year. Unlike the uh, protagonist of my novel, Open City, who spent his entire high school years in boarding school, I was there for a year. Um, it was around the time I was uh, ten years old, ten to eleven. So I was very young, um, and. Uh, this was um, a boarding school with a very tough disciplinary regime. Um, but in addition to that, I think it was also a boarding school in Nigeria at a time when that country was going a particular economic hardship. So that for the first time in my life, even though my parents meant well, they wanted me to be there, to be tough, to be independent, to be disciplined, to be in, a, to be in an environment that um, had a good academic values as well. All of that was fine. I mean, the discipline was a little bit too much, but the ac- academics was fine. But it was the first time I'd been hungry. There just wasn't enough food. We had regular meals, three meals a day, and the quantities were small. So that when I went home um, for, you know, um, holiday break, it's like eating everything in sight. I, I had never quite experienced hunger like that. Um, I left the school um, I, I, close to the end of my first year because I, f- I felt sick, something unrelated, you know, some waterborne illness. Mm. But I often think of the hunger of those days, days and weeks of just not quite having enough to eat. And I think it kind of, it's a long-winded answer, but it's sort of stuck into my head as kind of like the baseline of what you need to be able to do what you need to do, as long as you're not hungry. I mean, people say it, 
But I, I experienced it over the course of a year. Um, and even now as an, as an adult, I, I think to myself, as long as you're not hungry, you have a starting point. Hmm. So that for me, and here's my answer, being free creatively is dependent on, is dependent on me not being hungry. Right. If I can satisfy that baseline, then I can pretty much do what I want. So if I had to, for example, deliver pizzas part-time in order to do the work I needed to do, that's probably what I would do um, because that freedom is that important to me. Um, and I think the reason I reiterate the story to myself is so that I don't have to have that pressure of writing a bestseller. Well, I mean, I've not written any bestsellers. Um but so that I don't even have to have that pressure of doing a book that has an eye on the market and that will do as well as the one before it, you know. So probably each successive book has sold fewer than the last one. And I think that's probably what freedom should look like mm. because the freer you get, the more you're moving away from generally accepted genres and forms. Okay, so... That's part one of that answer. But now you're saying what is to come. I think what is to come is to prolong that thread and um, misuse the hospitality of a major publishing house that has committed itself to me um, until they say, well, you know what, no more. Your last book sold 12 copies. Um, and then I'll go, you know, I'll go to a small Brooklyn publisher that, you know, has a hand hand-operated press. <laughs> Who knows? You know what the publishing house likes is that I get I get good reviews. I mean, even though, you know, I'm never going to be Dan Brown. <laughs> but I realized that you were, you were speaking in the first part of, of your response about literal hunger, about actual hunger. It yeah. reminds me of something that uh, your unnamed narrator observes in Every Day is for the Thief, uh, they're more about violence and other forms of privation. Right? Okay. That the and, and you do, uh, obviously, a far finer job of articulating this in the novel than I will in paraphrasing it, but that when one is enmeshed in that amount of desperation, mm -hmm. of the simple mm -hmm. need to meet those, as you put it, those base, mm -hmm. not even wants or desires, but yeah. just simply the base needs of yeah. getting through a day. That's right. What possibility is there for transforming experience into into art, exactly for creativity, right. you know, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and that makes a great deal of sense. At this point, hunger, as we're talking about, it becomes a bit more metaphorical, thankfully. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. if we think about it as a metaphorical hunger for experience, at this point in your career, there is so much interest in what you're doing that, in some ways, there's abundance. And I guess in the other side of my question is. Uh, to pick up on your theme of hunger, what happens to your creative process now? Uh, you mean an abundance of other people's interest in my work or yes, an abundance in my access to what I want to do? I suppose that the two are interconnected. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some truth in it that there is a kind of abundance. I mean, you, you, you certainly don't, sit down and, as a young writer and and think, okay, I'm going to write 
something that will then be assigned to students in in universities that I've not visited before. So right. that is that is certainly a kind of um, worldly success that is also sort of flattering in its own way. Um, even though, of course, we have to contextualize it within the realities of literary production. You know, I mean, I I do fine, but I'm not like I'm not on the level of a of a junior. Banker at Goldman Sachs. Right. Yeah. I, don't mean, <laughs> you know, clear, I really don't mean abundance in the sense of material. Means. Right, but you you meant you meant you meant uh, creative yes, access, the exactly. the reality. But what, I mean, it's a good question. What does that do to one's head at the moment of sitting down to, sitting down to make yeah. work? Well, it comes out back to freedom, and and I'll say this is a question that has particularly heightened itself for me in the past one year for two reasons. One is that in the past, within the past 12 months, I've actually released um, two books, which is, you know, a fairly intense rate of production. Um, And so I am thinking a lot about what is the next thing and what should it look like? Uh, What do I allow myself to do? But also in the past year, we have um, seen a kind of um, um, slow motion collapse of the established American uh, liberal constitutional order, um, and it's happening, you know. Um, but what that has done in a weird way is that after 25 years of living in the United States, it is really making me think personally, intensively, about slavery, um, about the unexpurgated violence inherent in American history. All right, because we're seeing new or revised examples of it. I don't think I spent a lot of time before this past year thinking of myself personally in my own body vis-a-vis slavery. And now I wake up with thoughts like, if I were a slave in America, what would I do? You know, now that becomes a personal relation, you know, conversation about violence and, you know, I mean, I would cut my slave master's throat. I mean, but to even get myself to have that conversation with myself is a very strange place to be. But the flip side of it is to say, okay, now it's 2017. Regardless of what some people think, I am not a slave. What should that look like? And for me as a creative person, what must that be like? Which is that form of freedom? That freedom. What does it mean to really be free? You know, one of, for me, one of my most um, helpful to myself formulations from the past few months is this idea that the opposite of slavery is loitering. A, 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 a A person who is not a slave is a person who is free to go where she wishes or where he wishes. So to loiter, to go freely. Um, and one example of that is, you know, James Baldwin to go as he wishes and wander around, you know. And another example of that is, you know, Garcia Marquez to write with the energy and ferocity that he wishes because he's not a slave to anybody. Another example of that is John Coltrane, you know, who can just sort of open it out and not feel a responsibility to entertain, but to say I'm seeking something. Um, 
So when I encounter that abundance, on the one hand, I say, oh, lucky me, that's nice. But on the other hand, I say, not only is it my right, as it is everybody's right, to encounter the world, um, but the true debt is to the higher thing that has no name. It is not to them. It's not to the people who are spending the money. It's not to the people who run the institutions. It is to some more profound inner thing. Um, so there has to be this constant inner conversation of not making yourself answerable um, to to other people. But but you are answerable to some other thing. Right. You, do you know what I mean? It's, I do. I do. It's, it's, it's not, don't don't were, don't reduce it to a song and dance. Yeah, just to because what you were saying before about uh, maybe not so much pleasing a publisher, but using the occasion to <laughs> drain, yeah. drain the resource, do what you like. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I mean, I, and I suppose not be beholden, right? And I suppose this is what people will call ambition. But I, you know, like like that thing that you um, you quoted something from you know from an earlier book, you know, where I was saying. Um, you know, what would true freedom look like, you know? Right. And, you know, that is, that that somehow is the question for me not to let go of, right. you know, um, to be free. And I don't know where this obsession comes from. I mean, I've given some of the background to it, but really to be free. Um, and also in part because I believe that freedom is contagious. Um, and if you're free in the work you do it helps other people to be free in the work they do so you were speaking about james baldwin just before and uh, that brings me to a, a question that i had in my mind since you've engaged with baldwin's work among many others mm -hmm. in in your essays but i'm thinking about the way in which baldwin you mentioned his freedom to go to go to paris right, to, to travel in america and he expresses that freedom with such vivacity with mm -hmm. such vigor but also with such fury because mm -hmm. how often and you note this yourself in in the essay black bodies how often he winds up confronting this sense that he's also unfree because of mm -hmm. how his body is caught up in a a set of empowered gazes that mm -hmm. already configures him mm -hmm. as marginal and mm -hmm. as silenced mm -hmm. and as lesser and perhaps even as slave mm -hmm. um, regardless mm -hmm. of the dismantling of that system mm -hmm. but I want to think about that thread that's in some of your work about this irreducibly complex ordeal of uh, being seen by what Franz Fanon would have called the uniform mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. of, of skin color mm -hmm. in, in these racialized regimes of power mm -hmm. um, and so in essays like Black Bodies mm -hmm. or the White Savior Industrial Complex mm -hmm. uh, Reconciliation you, you tackle these issues of race and power um, and inequality head-on. Do you find that you're increasingly asked to think in a public way about race, inequality, about issues that have appeared in your work? And I wonder what if that's the case. I see you nodding. So if mm. that's been the case, does that feel like a natural aspect of your public intellectual life? Does it feel like a progression in your work? Mm. Or does it feel like something different that you weren't really anticipating developing. Hmm. Well, I thought there, w in fact, I thought there would be a lot more of it, but I think um, the voicing of my work has been such that I always then end up, 
you know, getting a range of things. I mean, it is true that I get a fair number of uh, requests from European magazines to write about Obama and Baldwin, um, you know, and nobody reaches out to me and says, oh, but also in that essay collection, you know, you've written about, you know, Michael Haneke's film. Will you write an article about Haneke for us? No, no, you know, they want me to write about, you know. So the black thing... um, or you know, no, nobody invites me to write about the history of Swiss, um, uh, my, uh, you know, travels in Swiss mountains. Even though I've written at length about that subject on my own, um, and yet, you know, uh, race is our reality here. So, the reason I don't reject a conversation about it is because I think we're all sort of tangled up in this, and it is important to think about it, and. I always think subjectively because I don't believe in the removed neutrality, right? We've all learned um, from Foucault and others that we are we are embodied beings having whatever societal experience we're having. I always think and write subjectively, but I don't always wish to think and write biographically, right? And, uh, you know, so tell us, as a black man is not as interesting as tell us as somebody in the world. Right. You know, so that for me, when I'm asked to think and talk about race, it's of a piece in a way with being asked to think and talk about gender, which is something I have foregrounded in a number of my works. Um, uh, to think about heteronormativity or queerness. Right. Uh, you know, even if I'm not queer myself, I'm a person experiencing this world and experiencing that thinking and experiencing other people's subjectivities. So for me, it's it's all of a piece. But one thought I've I've been trying to develop recently, and which I, I actually haven't written down yet, so this is a world premiere, <laughs> is you know when people are um, say um, I. Uh, I don't know, when some well-meaning white person says, well, actually, you know, I don't see color. Um, And the rest of us just sort of groan like, well, it's there, you know, and it's a reality. So, you know, when people say, you know, um, or or, or more often they say, I don't see race, you know, like everybody's the same to me. And Mm -hmm. okay, we know why that is somewhat foolish. But it's as a phrase, it's become kind of interesting to me because in societal practice, in everyday life, they are inadvertently touching on something that's also true, which is that in social uh, interaction and discourse with each other, color can start to disappear, actually. Um, You know, if you were married to somebody who was black, you would not wake up every day and they are oh, this person's black you know like i mean that would be ridiculous i mean right. so after a while you actually do not see their color they're just them the same way you don't think of your mother's having an accent because that's just the way mom talks you know or whatever um so i think it is possible to understand the i don't see color thing as a commentary or, or on the social construction that that race is, right? And then we have some very pale-colored black people, you know, 
some rather dark-skinned whites as well, and then all kinds of people in between Indians, Lebanese, Moroccans, Italians, and you know Portuguese and all of that, Brazilians. Um, it is a it's a social fiction. The problem is that people have not necessarily made that distinction between not seeing color, which is actually totally possible, and not seeing race, which is high irresponsibility. In other words, to encounter somebody who's black in America, and if your answer is, I don't see color, you're saying, I refuse to see the structures that are impinging on this person's life in ways that are actually quite intolerable, you know. Um, so that when somebody says, I don't see color, they're not making, or I don't see race, they're not making a statement about a, a, a desire for equality. They're actually sort of doing the opposite. There are things that we're never going to be at the liberty not to see until we have true equity. You know, I can be hanging out with a female friend and like, ah, she's just like a buddy, you know, up to the point where I do have to remember that as a woman in society, you know, she cannot put on her headphones and go for a walk at night, you know? So, um, you don't see gender, but you must see gender. You don't see race, but you absolutely must, must see race because it's, it's the reality. And so being called upon to talk about it, I also have to see it even though, even for myself very often, I mean, I don't wake up in the morning and think about my race, you know. I think about the fact that I'm in my 40s now and I have back trouble. That's what I think about, you know. Yeah, which That resonates. Which I imagine has happened to non-black people too. <laughs> yes, part of, the, part of the shared experience. Yes. Uh, but I, I'm just thinking about what you're, what you're addressing here and the way in which so much of the public discourse in American life, at the very least, tends to appeal to the personal to not see the systemic structural issues of gender and sexuality and race right. that cause many people to return to something we were talking about just before, to be unfree or at least less free than they ought to be mm-hmm. in a democracy, to be embedded in a body that is called out to be subject to somebody's power and to experience that at any moment of any given day or know that you are subject to that possibility is to be unfree. Right. And to appeal to the personal, right, to say, well, but I've gotten to know someone from this or that group, and they're not bad, and they're some of my best friends. Right. This kind of cliche. Right. uh, Also obscures the fact that this does not give you the right to not see. Exactly. embedded difference. I mean, I think we're very badly tangled up in a fantasy of what constitutes the normal, right? Right. Um, Encapsulated by the phrase, an all-American beauty. What is that? Well, everybody knows what they mean. You know, when Glamour has an all-American beauty on the cover, everybody knows what it's supposed to look like. Um, or when, you know, when the candidate Clinton in 2008 referred to hardworking Americans, white Americans, it was not really a slip of the tongue. It was, it was a slip of the mask. Um, 
It's always available. It's right there in that it, language of the real America. The real America. What are you taking the country back to? Right. And from whom? You know, or, or, you know, the fact that the candidate Obama had to sort of give this reassuring speech about his white grandfather and, and right. who went to the war and, you know, I'm like you. You know, I go to southern Illinois and I talk to white farmers, you know, um, the argument from biography um, and any form of appeal you can make to normal America. So, so that part of the work that needs to be done is to dismantle that sense of what is, what is normal America. And I don't think it's just a question of the presidency. I think it you know, sort of goes down all the way. Who, who are we to see as absolutely part of what is going on here, you know? Um, it should be the mayors and the university presidents and the professors and, you know, all the range of jobs and public uh, positions, you know, can be everything, can be everyone and everything who is here, you know? Otherwise, we're not being serious we're still indulging in ethno-nationalism which we are which we are <laughs> so sorry to <laughs> state it so plainly <laughs> well, you, I, I know that you need to go there's so many more questions that i wish yeah, i could well, ask you well this out. this was a pleasure i i hope we uh you know i hope we at least drew some blood the electro library short circuits is a production of the stonehill college digital innovation lab in conjunction with the English Department and the programs of creative writing and digital humanities. Special thanks to Teju Cole for sitting down with us today.